turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and if you have a copy of the Confession, you can have it open to paragraph 5 of chapter 19. What I want to read from the Scriptures is Romans three nineteen through chapter 4, verse 3. Romans three nineteen through 4, 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for the opportunity that we have to open Your Word, to read together, to study together, to consider Your holy law and Your your wonderful gospel. Lord, it is a, a delight to sing in the congregation of the saints, to see the faces of Your beloved people, to hear their voices singing truths true from the dawn of time and into eternity. Lord, I pray now that You would bless the teaching of Your Word as we look at our confession, that it would be... Uh, nourishment to our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Well, you're aware that yesterday was the 503rd anniversary of what many consider to be the major tipping point in the Reformation when Luther publicized his concerns about the teaching of papal Rome there in Germany. Or when Luther did that thing with that hammer on that door. If you've seen a thousand memes over the weekend. Of the many foundational truths that were discovered under the carnage of that false church, few are as popular as the doctrine of justification by faith. And very few quotes remain as popular in our day regarding justification by faith as that one quote that talks about how this doctrine is the article of a standing or falling church. The idea being, how do we know what is a true church and what is a false church? Well, the doctrine of justification by faith is a good, a good tell sign. If a church upholds the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that's the true church. And any church who begins to tamper with that doctrine is a false church. The irony is that many today who would claim to be children of the Reformation and give lip service to the doctrine of justification by faith reject the abiding validity of the moral law of God. And the reality is, without the abiding validity of the moral law of God, there is no justification by faith. We have not that doctrine. James Buchanan once wrote, it may be safely affirmed that almost all the errors which have prevailed on the subject of justification may be traced ultimately to erroneous or defective views of the law and justice of God. Now that might seem like a strange connection because we typically take it the opposite way. We typically have seen it played out that if you really hold to the doctrine of justification by faith, what that does is begin to pull you away from the abiding validity of the moral law. So hopefully, by the time we're finished, you'll see why this is true. The biblical doctrine of justification demands our confession's historic understanding of the law of God. Rather than relaxing the law, the true doctrine of justification upholds the law of God as we just saw the Apostle state. The first thing that I want you to see from our confession is the abiding validity of the moral law. We've already covered this in paragraph 1. We're going to dig a little bit further here. Paragraph 5 begins with this statement, The moral law doth forever bind all. We see in this statement or this reference to the moral law that we're leaving behind the ceremonies now. We're leaving behind the civil laws of Israel. We've, we've sort of left Sinai. Remember, we, we took three messages on the law as it was given at Sinai. We've left that behind. And now we're just going to take that concept of the moral law and we're going to run with it into our own day. Remember, the moral law was the foundation for obedience to the ceremonies and the civil codes given to Israel. Apart from the moral law, those things made no sense and nobody would seek to live by them unless they were keeping and holding to the moral law of God. The moral law of God is the transcript of God's own perfectly righteous character. It was so prior to Mount Sinai and it continues to be so after Mount Sinai. That moral law that we call the Ten Commandments doth forever bind all. The word bind means it constrains them to moral conformity. Now, 
One of the reasons that this is such a hairy subject in our day is because men hate the idea or the, the, the thought of being bound. They see the language in the Scriptures and especially in the New Testament, the ideas of freedom, and they assume that the idea of freedom in the New Testament is somehow contrary to freedom or, or contrary to the law as it's set forth. Men don't want to be bound. They want to be free. The irony is, I think we're seeing this especially in the present time with the, the, the political uh, happenings in our world, that all men want somebody bound by some law. Now, it might be different. You might want somebody bound that I don't want, and the other people might want to bind us, and we kind of want some of them to be bound. Everybody wants somebody to be bound by some kind of law. But the reality is God has established His own moral perfection as the universal rule of His kingdom and His universe. The idea that men would say, well, I think that that person should be bound by this particular law, if they can't find it here, that's legalism, as we've seen before. When men make up their own law, that's legalism, whether they claim to be Christians or not. We'll see more about being bound in just a minute. But the confession says that the moral law doth forever bind all That is, to use the language of the text this morning, small, great, rich, poor, free, slave, all types and kinds of people. This law is exhaustive and all-encompassing. It forever binds all. And then that all is divided into two groups. We're distinguished between... There's a distinguishing between the saints and the unbelievers, but there's a distinction in a very peculiar way. Notice the language says as well justified persons as others. Justification. We've seen this before. The doctrine that teaches that we have been declared righteous in the court of God, not according to our own righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Christ alone, imputed to us through faith, God drops the gavel and says, righteous over us. That's the doctrine of, the, uh, of justification or a brief summary of the doctrine of justification. This happens through faith alone, that arm of the soul by which we reach out and take hold of Christ. Those are the justified persons, those who've done that. They've reached out. They've taken Christ as their own. All of the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to them and then declared righteous. Those are justified people. Now, why does the confession say, as well justified persons and not just as well regenerate persons or as well Christian persons as others. I think the reason is because inherent in the concept of justification are these ideas of that legal declaration of God on account of that imputed righteousness. As as, as soon as you mention the doctrine of justification, you've entered into the courtroom. This is legal jargon. We're talking penology and the penal code that exists within or is implied within the gospel itself. So here's the summary of what we've just seen. That moral law, the transcript of God's righteousness, the Ten Commandments, continues to constrain or as the constraining moral obligation of men and women who've already been declared righteous in the court of God on account of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, why does that have to be stated? Because I think we're very quick to assume that since the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, that now we're no longer obligated to keep the law of God. This is exactly what was happening with Paul as he's writing to the Romans. He brings up a doctrine. 
And then he challenges the, the, uh, the anonymous objector. Or he, he brings in the anonymous objection. This is what we're seeing. This is not new. It's, it's historic. Men tend to mix justification and sanctification. They assume that because we've been justified, then the law is no longer binding upon us. Well, what does that assume? Well, that assumes that prior to justification, the reason we were obligated to the law was because at that point we were somehow bound to keep it unto salvation. That that prior to coming to faith, as long as we were keeping the law, we could earn our salvation, but then we become justified and we don't have to worry about that any longer. Now that salvation has come, no more need for law-keeping. Now we go back to that erroneous view of the word bound. What does it mean to be bound? Prior to justification, after justification, if you ask people today, especially professing Christians, are you as a believer bound to keep the moral law? Or are you obligated, are Christians today obligated to keep the moral law or the Ten Commandments? They almost instinctively assume that when you say bound or obligated, what you mean is keep it unto or or as a means of earning eternal life. And so they would respond in the negative. Well, of course not. Christians are not obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. We've seen from the beginning, this is a covenantal error. Only Adam was in a covenant or the covenant of works like that. Keep the law and earn eternal life. One man. Only Adam. And Adam failed to keep that covenant and we fell in him. So that idea of keeping the law and earning salvation, that ship sailed from the first man. That's that's over and done with and has been. And as we've seen... When we come to the nation of Israel at Sinai, that was not what God was doing. He wasn't saying, let's try again. Let's, let's, it, let's do a do-over. That's not what was happening. Bound does not mean obligated to obey the law in order to earn salvation. It means constrained to obey for some other reason, which we'll see in a moment. Those justified were not obligated to the law as a covenant of works before salvation. And nothing shifts simply because now they've been justified, other than the fact that now they have the grace of God in them that actually empowers them to keep it. So we too, justified persons, are bound by the moral law as a rule of life. And we'll see that next week. But we're not talking about salvation. So you see the notion of justification by faith does not do away with the binding validity of the moral law, especially for those who are justified. But then we go on to the other group. The justified are set against others. That would be those not justified, lost people, those not in a state of grace, those who are in Adam. Now again, why do we need to distinguish at this point? Why do we need to say it's obligating on all people and then say, yes, justified people, Christians, and yes, everybody else? Why do we have to say that? Well, people outside of the Christian faith might be tempted to think that the moral law of God is only for people who subscribe to the Christian God or subscribe to the Christian religion. They would say, well, it doesn't obligate lost men who don't even pretend any allegiance to this God. It doesn't obligate heathen nations. That, that Ten Commandments, that's a Christian thing. That's your religion. Well, that's simply false. Again, when we go back to the first paragraph, God gave Adam the law 
by which He bound Him and all His posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Everybody, all people, all religions, whatever people profess or don't profess, wherever their allegiance is, they are still bound by this moral law of God. The other side of that irony, people not outside the Christian faith, is very often Christian professors will make very bold claims about the Ten Commandments. You know, the schools, they really went downhill since they took the Ten Commandments off the walls. Or, or they'll look at those outside in the world, godless men, and say, you know, they should keep the law of God, or they should stop lying, or they, they shouldn't steal. Those people breaking into those stores and stealing, they shouldn't do that. They should, there's a law somewhere. You go to those same people and say, well, do you believe that Christians are bound by the Ten Commandments? And they say, well, no, we're, we're not under the law, we're under grace. There's this irony because people have, have really cut their Bibles in half and then misconstrued both halves. It's both justified people as well as others, Christians and heathens, true saints, false professors, everyone. The moral law doth forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. If you're in this room, the moral law of God binds you to keep it. You are obligated to keep that law. The moral law binds all men to obedience. Now what does it mean to be bound to the obedience of a law? Well, it means God the lawgiver first requires all men to keep that law, but secondly, He will hold men accountable to that standard. In this, all men are bound to obedience to the moral law. God requires all of them to keep it, and He will hold all of them to that standard at some point. Now, what are some other options? When I say that stuff, you think, well, that's, that's really pretty basic. Well, historically, within even Christian circles, that has not been affirmed. Here are some other options over against the moral law forever binding all as well justified persons as others to its obedience. Here are some other options that have been put forward. Um, that God relaxed His law in light of man's inability to keep it. In other words, He gave the law to Adam. Adam failed. He clearly couldn't keep it. So God says, okay, apparently I, I misjudged. Sorry. Let's just lower the bar and give you something you can keep. Well, the problem with that is that as the more and more wicked men get, the lower and lower the bar would have to come until eventually there's no bar at all simply because men are so wicked. Well, that's nonsensical. Secondly, some people would say that, that in the ministry of Christ, He introduced a new law that is somehow different than the moral law. You know, things like um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That, that, is the, that That's the law, which we've seen. Well, that's just a summary of the Ten Commandments. But they somehow misconstrue that. And, and again, I've, I've said this before, when you, when you begin to drill in the, to screw in the, the screws of these doctrines, what you find is they don't want to keep the Sabbath. Every single time, that's the issue. Is the fourth? None of nobody's going to say, "Well, yeah, I mean, we can murder people now because Christ has come." Nobody says that. You bring them to the fourth commandment. That's going to be the fundamental issue because people don't like to give up their time. Thirdly, some would say that the same law is still in play, 
But God just doesn't require perfect obedience anymore. He just re requires a good, sincere effort. And if you sincerely strive to keep the law, then that's all that God requires. Again, these have, these have been put forth within confessing Christian circles. We confess that the moral law continues as the universal standard which constrains all men and the standard by which all men will be judged. Period. Now, let's look at the, the confession gives us two scripture references. The first is in Romans 13. And you can turn there. Hopefully you're still open in Romans. We're going to come back to Romans 3 at the end. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now what's Paul quoting from here? The Ten Commandments. The moral law of God. He's writing to saints in Rome, some of them Jewish, some of them Gentiles. And he quotes to them under the new covenant, the law of God. That word summed up means to gather all of them up into one. Now some would object and say, well, in this text, he doesn't reference the first table of the law. He's referencing the second table of the law. And therefore, this is the new law, the law of Christ. To answer that, I would say four things. First, he doesn't even fully quote the second table of the law. He doesn't say anything about honoring your parents. He doesn't say anything about lying. It's clear that he's not attempting to be exhaustive. In the context, he's not dealing with their relationship to God, but with their relationship to other people, which would be the second table. Secondly, he closes with that phrase, and any other commandment, which would include the rest of the moral law. Remember that Christ's, or remember Christ's answer concerning the law. He said that all the law and the prophets hang on a summary of the both, ta both tables, and one of the, the second part of that was what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That, that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two. And then fourthly, you cannot properly fulfill the second table of the law if you don't subscribe to the first table of the law. You, you walk down the line of the second table and treat everybody perfectly or, or uh, unto a requirement of the law, but you don't do it in a worship to God in the way that He has prescribed, you've not kept the law. You've not done it. Now, why is that the case? Why can we say the second table requires and leans upon the first table? Well, that leans, leads us to the, the second reference in James chapter 2. And we can turn there. We'll, be in, we'll see two references from James. James chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now remember, Paul, James, they didn't have a New Testament. When they say according to the Scripture and the law, they're referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, if, if you show partiality, you're committing sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Again, James is summarizing the second table of the law to New Testament saints. And he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is guilty of all of the law. You can't properly keep one part while neglecting the rest of it. It doesn't work like that because it's one whole law. The moral law is perpetually binding on all men in all places and all times. And we see that clearly displayed not just in the ministry of Christ, but in Paul and James. Contrary to what some may say, these things are not in the New Testament. They are in the New Testament. Secondly, our main heading number two, the reasons for its continued validity. Point number one was the abiding validity of the moral law. Point number two, the reasons for its continued validity. Why does the law continue to bind men? The confession puts it this way, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. So all men are bound to keep the law, not only in regard to the matter contained in it, that, mean, that is, they are bound to do everything that it says, fulfill its contents. There's no relaxation, there is no new law, there are no coupons offered on behalf of sincere attempts because you tried hard. All men in all places are bound by the moral law of God to obey it as it stands, as it was given. Why? Because the matter contained in it is the only perfect standard of righteousness. The law is holy and righteous and good and universal and exceeding broad and perfect in all of its ways. There is no other law that meets this criteria. It is divine in its matter, given from God Himself. But also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Remember, we're going back to what we saw in paragraph 1. The relationship between Creator and creature. Because that stands, we are obligated to keep His law. He hasn't changed. Our relationship to Him as far as creature and Creator has not changed. And that is true for all men. If you're a human being, God is your Creator and you are His creature. So that's the positive statement. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, are forever obligatory for all men. They must obey it and they must submit to the kingship of God, their Creator, who gave it. And the confession references back to James 2 again. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For, here's the reason why, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Here's the point. The same God who gave the one portion, your Creator, your King, also gave the other portion. It's, it's based upon the relationship that God has over His people. Creator of all things, ruler of all men, His law abides and, and binds all men. God has not changed and the standard has not changed. Thirdly, we see the gospel's strengthening of it. 
the abiding validity of the moral law, the reasons why it still abides, and now we see the gospel's strengthening of the moral law. First, there's a negative statement. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve. In other words, Christ, in the specific details of His work, in the story that we call the gospel, has not and does not dissolve the law of God. We can't say, well, now that Christ has come, the law of God has been done away with. Now again, we have to ask, why do did, why did these men feel the need to put this in the confession? Why is this an object of contention? Because some would say that since Christ has come, we're not under the law as a covenant of works, and therefore we aren't bound by it. Again, they're making the same error we saw before. No one was under a covenant of works as a means to eternal life except Adam. And he fell. Our relationship to the covenant of works is that of covenant breakers. But the reward of life has long since been lost in Adam. We, we, there's no, it's not an option. It's not on the table. So Christ and His gospel work, His redemptive work, did not in any way dissolve the universal obligation of all men to the moral law of God, negatively, but positively, but much strengthen this obligation. In other words, not only did Christ in His gospel work not dissolve the law and the obligation to the law, He actually made the obligation stronger. Now the confession gives us two references here. One is a clear assertion of this truth from Christ, and then another one is from the Apostle Paul. The first one is from Christ in Matthew 5. And we can turn there. Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I think we know this fairly well. Verses 17 to 19 of Matthew chapter 5. Our Lord says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, here's the application of that. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He clearly states unambiguously, I did not come to abolish the law. He clearly states, no ambiguity, I came to fulfill the law. And then he warns against relaxing the commandments of God. Now, so to follow the logic here. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. Therefore, do not relax the commandments. Don't teach others to relax the commandments. A relaxing of the commandments of God is in direct contradiction to what Christ came to do, which was to fulfill. Now, some people would object. This is, it's really laughable. And they would say, well, He came to fulfill them. Therefore, they're done away with and no obligation remains. Here's a little hint. If your interpretation of the first part of the sentence causes you to completely contradict the second part of the sentence, 
You got the first part wrong. He says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Therefore, do not relax. Do not relax the law. Whatever it may mean that He came to fulfill, it can't mean that He did something that now releases us to relax the laws because He says don't relax them. If anything, it would seem that the word fulfill would imply the opposite, which is what our confession is saying. And we note that Christ then proceeds from that point to elaborate on various points of the law. He talks about anger or murder. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths and telling the truth, retaliation, loving your enemies, the fulfillment of the law. He goes on to open up the law. He takes the stake of the law and drives it into the hearts of men, amplifying its obligation. He didn't relax it. He said it's actually more than what you've been taught. There's Christ. Okay, now turn back to Romans 3. And I'll admit this, this particular issue is much more broad than we're going to see it that I'm even capable of explaining. But it's, it's really important. Romans, the reference is Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. He's, it's almost like he's verbatim quoting Christ in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Now let's think about the context of the book of Romans. Chapter 118 to 3.20, Paul has just expounded the universal sinfulness of men. All men, Jews and Gentiles, no distinction. They are under the wrath of God because of their sin. In chapter 4, and this is why I read a little ways into the chapter, in chapter 4. In chapter 4, he begins to open up and unpack the doctrine of justification by faith. And in between these, verses 21 and so forth, he, he lays the groundwork for the doctrine of justification by pointing to what God has done in Christ. It's very interesting that he, he just sort of interjects what we would consider the, almost the entirety of the gospel narrative. God putting forth His Son as a propitiation by His blood, the shedding of the blood of Christ, all of that. He puts that forth and he says in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. God justifies or declares righteous those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And the anonymous response that he gives here in 331, do we then overthrow the law by faith? This is man's natural response. Oh, so God put forth Christ to, to propitiate, to absorb the wrath of God, to do away with that, to reconcile us back to God. Christ is the righteousness that's been put forth. So what you're saying is, the law is kind of, it's gone, right? We don't even have to worry about that. And he says, by no means. The strongest negation in the New Testament. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. People would say, well, I guess the law is useless since we can be justified by faith. He's saying, you weren't justified by the law before. That was, that was Adam. We're, we're done with that. But this is our tendency to drift into the thinking that we can obey the law to earn our standing before God. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Justification by faith alone does not get rid of the law or our obligation to it. 
Quite the contrary, it upholds the law. The word uphold means establish or affirm or to confirm the legal validity of, of the law. How can that be? Again, God has not changed. Righteousness, the definition of righteousness, has not changed. God's requirement of righteousness has not changed. What is the doctrine of justification? Let's read it from our confession. Chapter 11, paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calleth, He also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. Here's the phrase, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in His death, which would also be a part of the law, the, the, the judicial sanction of that law, for their whole and soul righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. So we see here, Central to the doctrine of justification by faith is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. How did Christ earn that righteousness? What did He do? He kept the whole law. And that whole law He kept in the place of the ones who have faith in Him. God's standard has not changed. God's righteous requirement has not changed. God's perfect justice requires that lawbreakers be punished. And so justice must be served and righteousness must be upheld. The question is how can God's righteousness and justice be upheld in a way that serves in the salvation of those who are the lawbreakers, the ones who deserve to be punished? Christ's active obedience to the moral law is imputed to them. So that in Christ, when God looks upon you, He sees you as one who has perfectly kept the entirety of the moral law. It's imputed to us through faith. The gospel work of Christ, including His entire life and perfect obedience to the law of God, is the only way that sinners can be saved and God's justice can be upheld. There's only one gospel that does both of those. Every other gospel in the world will fail at one of those points. Either it will reduce the justice of God or, or begin to tweak the attributes of God or it produces somehow sinners are not actually saved by what Christ accomplished. It's only the biblical gospel that says God, His justice was upheld, His justice was served, and in the acting of Christ, people were literally saved in His act. The biblical doctrine of justification upholds the law of God in that it maintains it as the standard of righteousness. If the moral law of God is no longer binding on all men, then the obedience of Christ is of no use to them. Men are not sinners where there is no law. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. No sinners, no need for Christ. Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, who defines righteous? 
who defines sinners. What is a sinner if there is no standard of righteousness? How can we know? Who did He come to call? Romans chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that phrase, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that God provides of Himself in Christ. They, they were ignorant of what God was providing and so they sought to establish their own. We don't need yours, we'll do it ourselves. But he says Christ is the end of that way of thinking for those who believe. Not because He came down from heaven incarnate and said, okay guys, just want to let everybody know, that law deal, just forget about it. We're going to let that stuff slide. Just be pretty good and I believe I can get you in. No, He came to the earth incarnate as a man and lived and fulfilled all of the requirements of the law of God perfectly in our place. And that is imputed through faith. Apart from the abiding validity of the moral law, there is no doctrine of justification. Apart from the abiding validity of the moral law, you've basically got a man who was good for no apparent reason, who died for people who didn't really need it, to satisfy the Father who wasn't really that provoked because His law is no longer valid. Hopefully we see the utter inability of that kind of thinking to save. May we be faithful to uphold the law of God, not only in our lives of obedience in sanctification, where the infused righteousness of the Holy Spirit comes to us by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, but also in maintaining and proclaiming the biblical gospel that when it comes to justification, there is no infused righteousness. It is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone through faith alone. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more together.